Hello and welcome to MedTech Insights Monthly 321. Hello and welcome to MedTech Insights Monthly Roundup of Digital Health News. I'm editor Marion Webb and with me today I editor Reed Miller and our rep is our editor. Jeez. Okay. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome to MedTech Insights Monthly Roundup of Digital Health News. I'm editor Marion Webb and with me today is our editor Reed Miller and our reporters Barnaby Pickering and Produce Alpha Wook, who also goes by the name Danny. Reed, you wrote an update on Abbott's Beyond Intervention Program, which is trying to improve outcomes for vascular disease by looking at factors they can influence other than interventional devices. Could digital health play a role in that effort? Yeah, so Abbott definitely wants to consider every technological solution they can. I talked to Nick West, who is the chief medical officer for Abbott's vascular business, and he talked to me about how the company is developing artificial intelligence and machine learning tools that they hope can be used to help physicians identify which patients need interventions. Now, right now, that's mostly about just applying to artificial intelligence to imaging, um, you know, optical coherence tomography and things like that. But their Beyond Intervention program um, is about a lot more than that. So they've run some surveys of patients, doctors, administrators, and the most recent survey showed that about a quarter of the physicians in the survey said that they lacked the adequate technology or equipment to consistently and accurately diagnose vascular disease. And one third of the administrators believe that they lack a widely accepted standardized approach for diagnosing vascular disease and that that's a major obstacle to accurate diagnosis. So he also told me about the increasing consumerization of healthcare and that's letting patients take hold of their own healthcare and demanding um, that the information they can collect by themselves become part of their patient record and part of their management strategy. And of course, that includes smartwatches and apps and all those things. Um, so the, all those things could could eventually help diagnose vascular disease earlier in the process, long before somebody actually needs to go to the cath lab. Now, Abbott hasn't talked very specifically about how it's going to do all that and what's in it for them, but he told me that they do see an urgent need to do something because they want to start addressing vascular disease uh, a lot earlier and also find more patients, obviously. What else did those survey results reveal? Well, the thing he mostly talked about was how it showed a disconnect between how doctors and administrators think their care is going and how the patients are, um, see it. The survey responses from patients showed that there's a general lack of awareness in the public about the symptoms of vascular disease, especially peripheral vascular disease, and what the treatment options are. About one in five patients surveyed said they had been misdiagnosed at least three times before they got the right diagnosis for their symptoms. And again, this particularly a problem with peripheral vascular disease because nobody seems to know you know what the symptoms of that are whereas for coronary disease people have a better idea of what, what that feels like the patients also said that they were dissatisfied with how much face time they were getting with their physicians and they're also really unhappy about the apparent lack of communication between their primary care doctor and the specialists and among the specialists um, now these are all problems that could maybe be alleviated at least somewhat with more communication technology um, and a big part of that, of course, is interoperability and problems with sharing medical records. A lot of the patients in the survey, especially the peripheral patients, again, are annoyed that they, they get passed around from doctor to doctor. And every time they go to a new doctor, they have to tell them the whole story again and give them all the information they already gave to their previous doctor. It's, 
even in 2021, that, that keeps happening. So why is Abbott trying to get involved with those issues? Yeah, I'm not exactly clear exactly how directly they're going to be involved in all of this. You know, for example, the electronic medical records issue, that's not really something that you would think a device company like Abbott would get involved with. But they have to do whatever they can to help the doctors, you know, treat more patients earlier because that's how you're going to make the biggest impact on outcomes. Abbott creates all kinds of wonderful devices like stents and catheters and stuff. Um, but if they, they want to demand, expand the demand for those things, they need to ensure that those uh, interventions have better outcomes. And the best way to make sure they have better outcomes is to make sure the patient's overall care, not just that intervention, is a lot better. So it's also worth noting that Abbott is trying to address some of the inequalities in how healthcare is delivered. And we've written a lot about that. And we, in particular, we wrote about some of the initiatives that Abbott is sponsoring in that area. For example, one of the big problems is that in vascular medicine in particular, that the populations that get enrolled in clinical trials are not very diverse. They tend to be more male and more white than average, uh, even though we know for certain that there's all kinds of under, underserved populations that have big problems with vascular disease. So one of the things Abbott is doing is they're going to pay for scholarships at medical schools and nursing schools connected to historically black institutions. The idea there is that if they can get more people of color to want to become clinical researchers and run clinical trials, that they'll have more success recruiting people of color and from those communities into the clinical trials. All this goes back to the problems of communication and how medical device companies just need to do a better job of communicating directly with patients. And that's not something historically they've ever had to do. Yeah, that's obviously a big theme right now in medtech, and it's driving a lot of this digital health innovation. Thanks for that, Reed. Reed. Sorry, I was on mute. Yeah, thanks. So, Marion, over to you now. We wrote up an exec chat based on your interview with Linnea Berman, who is the general manager of enabling technologies for cranial and spinal technologies at Medtronic. And what did you get out of that interview? Yes, Reed. So there are definitely some new announcements coming from Medtronic CST division. The major announcement was the appointment of Harry Keel, better known as Skip Keel, to head the division starting in January of next year. So then Linnea told Medtech Inside she's excited to welcome Skip to the Medtronic family and noted that his orthopedic experience and deep experience in building global businesses will add to the division. Now, Gips, oh, three, two, one. Now, Skip joins Medtronic from Smith & Nephew, where he was the president of the global orthopedic business. He also previously held positions at Stryker and Nuvasive. The company had just celebrated its anniversary of the buyout of France-based Medecria, which will further Medtronic's expansion into AI, machine learning, and predictive technologies. That was also one of the big announcements, or news, I should say, for the division. And of course, Linnea and I talked about um, Mazor, which is three, two, one. And of course, Mrs. Berman and I discussed uh, new developments with the Mazor, which is the robotic assisted guidance system for spinal surgeries, and some of the new plant developments with that system. Okay, that's great. And you also wrote up a startup spotlight story, uh, which is, as the name implies, highlights some up and coming companies. What can you tell us about that? Yes, Reed. So it was great to learn about Kala Health, which developed a wearable device for treating essential tremor. 
which is a neurological disorder that causes involuntary shaking, mostly in the hands. And these symptoms disappear at rest. And that's not to be confused with Parkinson's disease, in which shaking at rest is a common symptom that disappears during movement. So what makes Calahealth's Cala Trio device interesting is that it's worn on the wrist and designed to provide on-demand relief from hand tremors caused by a central tremor. How it works is that electrodes on the inside of the wristband Three, two, one. How it works is that it has electrodes on the inside of the wristband which deliver electrical stimulation to the median and radial nerves, and that disrupts the pathological tremor frequency signals in the central neural net network. The key to the technology is the link between sensors reading physiologic signals from the body to calibrate and customize the therapeutic electrical signals. So the patient uses the device at home after it's been prescribed by a physician and after it's been calibrated for personalized stimulation, the device automatically delivers a 40-minute dose of therapy and patients can actually do back-to-back -back therapies with this device as well. So like with many new technologies, reimbursement remains the major barrier to wider adoption, but the device has been granted breakthrough device designation from the FDA last October for treating active tremors, and it'll be interesting to, to follow uh, what, what will happen next with this company. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, that's obviously a very interesting technology, um, so we'll have to keep following. Now, this week you wrote a story on digital therapeutics. Um, there's some really interesting innovations going on in that space. So now we'll, we'll switch to Barnaby. Now, Barnaby, this month you spoke to the CEO of Cognic Three. How do you say it? How do you say that? Congenica. All right. Three, two, one. This month you spoke to the CEO of Congenica, a company that specializes in diagnosing rare disease. What can you tell us about that? Sure. So at the heart of Congenica is a team of researchers based in Cambridge, UK, who are passionate about diagnosing rare disease in a way that is both rapid and cheap. The company came about after its founders realised that for children suffering from rare disease, the time taken for diagnosis was unacceptable. Described as the diagnostic odyssey by the company's CEO, David Atkins, this period can lead to poor or even harmful treatment being delivered. So what does Congenica do? So what they do is they use powerful machine learning to rapidly sort through a patient's genome and spot errors. These errors, when compared with other patients exhibiting similar symptoms, can then be used to indicate diagnosis. And then after this, effective treatment can in some cases be delivered. Okay, so what does that mean for the people who do not suffer from a rare disease? Well, the word rare kind of needs to be redefined. Um, one in 17 people suffer from rare disease. Rare disease includes epilepsy, dermatitis, and encompasses many forms of cancer. By the time you sum up the odds of each person suffering from a rare disease, you could almost argue that rare is no longer a good descriptor. Fundamentally, though, the benefit to society comes in two forms. The first is cost saving. Diagnosing a disease allows for effective treatment to be delivered sooner. Whilst not relevant in some rare diseases, as they have no treatment, there are many instances where early targeted treatment can greatly improve quality of life and lead to lower healthcare costs. The other benefit comes simply from an improved understanding of genetics. 
Congenica is working with the UK's 100,000 Genome Project, which has recently been expanded to become the 500,000 Genome Project to study genetic differences across large populations. The hope is that this will provide vast quantities of information to drug developers about how populations react to drugs. This could then inform development options, but on a personal level, even inspire personalized medication regimes. All right, well, thanks a lot for that, Barnaby. Now, you also wrote a story looking at development in the deep brain stimulation space. Like, what can you tell us about that? So in November, Medtronic announced that it had partnered with the data analytics company Rune Labs. Rune Labs will be provided data from 1,000 patients fitted with Medtronic's Percept deep brain stimulator to analyze. The partnership will help enhance the current capabilities of Medtronic's tech and may also provide deeper insights into the currently poorly understood mechanisms behind Parkinson's. Prior to this collaboration, one of the largest problems facing DBS developers, deep brain stimulation developers, that is, was a lack of data. Most trials comprise three, two, one. Most trials comprise of less than 100 patients, and the measurement periods range from a few days to at most six months. The Rune Labs Medtronic tie-up will record data for a whole year, providing huge amounts more data than what was previously available. The CEO of Rune Labs, Brian Pepin, also explained that the under Three, two, one. The CEO of Rune Labs, Brian Pepin, also explained that studying this many patients will help the company spot those that are more likely to benefit from certain up and coming pharmaceutical drugs, remedying a key issue faced by a totally different sector, also, which is patient enrollment. Okay. So, Danny, let's turn to you. You covered the digital health landscape for us on a number of fronts this month. Um, what can you tell us? about that, uh, sorry, three, two, one. So let's start out with the legislative activity. What can you tell us about what's happening there? Sorry, took a second to find my uh, unmute button. Okay, three, two, one. Yes, thanks. Uh, there's a lot going on on the legislative front. Maybe most importantly, lawmakers in the U.S. House Energy and Commerce Committee officially introduced the 21st Century Cures 2.0 bill. Like his predecessors, the Cures 2.0 addresses a huge number of medical and health care issues, including digital health. In particular, includes a requirement that the Secretary of Health submit a report a year after the enactment of the bill detailing how various federal agencies are collaborating to regulate digital health technologies. It also requires an update from the FDA on how it coordinates with foreign regulators to harmonize digital health regulations. The bill also proposed to increase access to telehealth in a number of Medicare and Medicaid populations. This includes the Telehealth Improvement for Kids Essential Services Act, which would require CMS to develop guidance and strategies to help states effectively integrate telehealth into their Medicaid program and the Children's Health Insurance Program. One piece of legislation not included in the Cures 2.0 telehealth coverage for CMS Medicare Diabetes Prevention Pro. Sorry, let me do that again. Three, two, one. One piece of legislation not included in Cures 2.0 is the telehealth coverage for CMS medical. I have to say CMSs. It just uh, gets blurred. Three, two, one. One piece of legislation not included in Cures 2.0 is telehealth coverage for CMS's Medicare Diabetes Prevention Program. As listeners and readers may remember, advocates as listeners and readers may remember, advocates have been lobbying the agency to provide coverage, but in November CMS dashed those hopes when it didn't include it in their physician fee schedule. 
Advocates say they are more motivated than ever to force CMS to cover telehealth for diabetic. Advocates say they are more motivated than ever to force CMS to cover telehealth for diabetic Medicare patients by passing legislation. Okay, that's very interesting. Now it's the end of the year, so we'll have to watch what happens to those pieces of legislation in 2022. You also did some reporting this past month on artificial intelligence. So what can you tell us about that? Three, two, one. Sure, as you know, in recent months, there have been a growing number of voices raising concerns about disparities in the healthcare system being amplified by artificial intelligence products. In that vein, an expert at the annual Xavier Health AI Summit outlined how product sponsors can identify different types of biases and emphasize that the key to addressing such disparities is first acknowledging that they exist. We also spoke with legal experts at the law firm Sidley Austin for a podcast about how the current legal landscape can tell us about the future of AI negligence litigation and what companies can do to protect themselves. There are three, two, one. There really isn't any legal precedence for AI, but there are a number of areas of the law that may be indicative of how companies, sorry, three, two, one. There really isn't any legal precedence for AI, but there are, ah, blah. Um, one thing I think what, what's confusing, I'm, I'm, I'm reading too much forward into it. Um, the next thing says it's Marion, but I think it should really be read, right? Uh -huh. Oh, right, right, right. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it should be read. Okay, just okay. cool. Just making sure. Um, three, two, one. There really isn't any legal precedence for AI, but there are other areas of the law that may be indicative of what companies can expect. Yeah, this is obviously a bit of a brave new world. So, Danny, you also wrote a few articles about cybersecurity related to medical devices in particular. Can you talk to us a little bit about what's been going on in that important space? Three. Two, one. Yes, yeah, so first of all, security researchers recently disclosed that they have found vulnerabilities in Siemens' nucleus real-time operating system that are used by a slew of medical devices and could affect about 4,000 products using a suite of software, including patient monitors and anesthesia, ultrasound, and extra machines. Three, two, one. The researchers in Siemens have already started... Three, two, one. The researchers in Siemens have already started to address those vulnerabilities alongside federal agencies. And speaking of federal agencies, the FDA recently also announced the availability of the Playbook for Threat Modeling Medical Devices, which was put together by the Mitri Corporation and the Medical Device Innovation Consortium with funding from the agency. While it's not promoted as a regulatory document and has no legal weight, the manual is an important part of how manufacturers can prove that they've done their due diligence when it comes to medical device cybersecurity. Also, one other thing worth mentioning is our executive editor, Sean Schmidt, recently did a podcast in his Speaking of MedTech series where he discusses the FDA regulatory side of digital health and some of the more important related policies and activities that are going on at the agency right now. So be sure to check that out. All right. Well, thanks a lot for that, Danny. And I would also encourage everyone to listen to Sean's podcast. That has a lot of great insight. Now, the archive of the Digital Health Roundup podcasts the Speaking of MedTech podcast, uh, MedTech Insights Device Week, and the rest of Informa Pharma Intelligence's podcast are available on the Informa Pharma Intelligence channel on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify Podcast. And if you have a smart speaker that you can set up uh, one of these as your default, you can find it that way. You can also find us on Twitter, of course, at MedTech underscore Insight. I'm at, 
I'm MedTech Reed. Danny is MedTech underscore Danny. Marion is MedTech Marion. And Barnaby is MedTech Barney. Thanks for listening and have a happy holidays. Awesome. Cool. Okay, let me stop recording. Nope. All right. Okay.